Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 573 with Bill Truby. Bill is sharing how you can delegate with all the better results. So you'll learn one, the biggest mistake leaders make with delegating. Two, the most crucial thing you need to delegate. And three, the only four reasons why people fail to follow through. So if you want to check out the show notes, or the transcript, or the links to albums we've referenced, you can find that in your podcast app player by expanding the episode notes or description. And if you don't see it, Drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP573, and you can find the transcript and those goodies there with all the more clickably delightful links that some podcast players will allow. You'll also find the gold nuggets, by the way, which lets you get a summary email that you can read in just about three minutes of the wisdom that Bill's sharing here, as well as access to the vault, the archive of all 573 episodes. Those are the gold nuggets, which you can find at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Bill's story. Bill brings the background of common sense learning, being raised on a cattle ranch, a BA in theology, an MA in psychology, the experience of an MFT, marriage and family therapist, and nearly 30 years of business practice to the table. These multiple perspectives and backgrounds synergize to bring amazingly simple yet powerful tools to leaders and managers, tools that have proven over and over for nearly four decades. Big thanks to Bill for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provider compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com here is Bill. Bill, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, my pleasure, Pete. I'm uh, thankful to be able to talk with you. And I guess it's been a while since uh, we've begun to connect and now we're really voice to voice. Well, I am thankful too, because I remember I've discovered you in my very first batch of guest recruitment. It was in the, uh, the For Your Improvement book by the Corn Fairy folks. Had a nice bibliography of books and resources associated with each skill I thought I might focus in on. Yours was one. I liked it. It didn't work out. But four years later, <laughs> well, here we are. I'm glad we both stuck with it. <laughs> well, I embarrassingly apologize, Pete. There was a lot going on in life back oh, then. No. Oh, me too. And I didn't really follow up much. It was like every, uh, I don't know, year. Hey, Bill, uh, I still want you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am thankful too. And uh yeah, it, it's, it's the way things are meant to be, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, so we've got a lot of fun to get into when it comes to delegation, but I want to hear just a smidge about you grew up in a cattle ranch in Texas, and my experience with ranches is limited to 
the Nickelodeon program, Hey Dude, I watched as a child. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you poor soul, you. Tell us about this. Oh, well, I tell you what, I attribute uh, most of who I am and how I am to my cowboy background. And uh, I didn't grow up in Texas, but I have roots in Texas. If you look at a map of Texas, about two hours north of Abilene, you'll see a little town called Truby, Texas. And uh, there's a little book written by the Arizona Historical Society about the Trubies and the Coxes. And the Trubies were the cattle ranchers, the Coxes were the sheep herders. And if you know about American history, they were at war when gun ruled the uh, the land. I mean, it was eight, late 1800s and the Trubies and the Coxes were both bullheaded and they were shooting each other. And the... Uh, Local sheriff finally rounded up the most uh, offending trubies and the most offending coxes and put them in jail. And in those days, you couldn't uh, convict until the circuit-riding judge came around, which he finally did. Well, the judge finally said, because cowboys are loyal. That apparently sheep herders are too. And people were lying for their family of uh, support and their family of choice. So finally, the judge said, there's no getting the truth here. You're free to shoot it out. Oh, so wow. everybody, yeah, everybody left the courthouse. The book talks about it. And uh, Trubies apparently were smarter than they look because they left. And they went to New Mexico. That's where my dad was born. And he lived, he was raised on a little uh, ranch there in a sod house. And then he moved to Northern California where I was born and raised on a cattle ranch in Humboldt County. And I end this little story by telling you that the Texas Historical Society allows you to adopt a small town. Hmm. So I adopted Truby, Texas. I have a town. Oh, there you go. But apparently Trubies weren't worth much because it only cost me 25 bucks to... Uh, well, well, what are your responsibilities? <laughs> if you've adopted a town, you're the father, like do you have to pay yeah. for things and... <laughs> I have a certificate. That's it. Okay. That's it. And there's 24 <laughs> people that live there. So they had to split that last dollar, Pete. <laughs> so that's the beginning of my uh, uh, my heritage, and uh, yeah, a lot of lot of things I learned though, Pete. Hard work, uh, honesty, integrity. My word is better than a contract. Okay, excellent. Well, let's hear your good word when it comes to effective delegation. It's a universal skill. We need some more great wisdom on how to do it well. You're one of the guys, so. Your book has a compelling bullet that says effective delegation can leverage our time. By 6,000%. That's quite a figure. It's kind of specific. Where do we get it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that book, first of all, is uh, was written long ago. And uh, one of our claims to fame long ago was the ability to teach people how to delegate effectively and always get follow through. Or if you didn't, you were able to fix it with one or two times. And uh, it's a it's a powerful... So our uh, co-author at the time, I've written some other books, but I did a co-author at the time, and he did some research of some of our folk that, uh, that used the tool and uh, multiplied their time that they used to take to uh, fix delegations that just didn't work well and uh, did the old math. I, I don't know how he did it. But uh, it was a pretty impressive number, but I know intuitively and I know empirically that over 40 years of doing this, it, it just proves this tool. It works. It always mm-hmm. works. Yeah. Well, I mean, I imagine, you know, 6,000%, 60X. I mean, if you've got uh, 60 people and you're delegating well, then that would do it and work out there. So 
I want to really dig into a whole lot of the particulars for what's the system and how we can utilize it. First off, I think maybe, could you frame it up for us? Like, I think we probably all know delegating is handy (laughs) as opposed to trying to do everything yourself. And yet it seems hard. So can you share what makes it hard? What's holding us back? What are some of the mental blocks? Like, why don't we just do this? That is an excellent question, and it's uh, excellent because it sets the premise. If we don't delegate, then we have to do it ourselves. The only way that a leader, the only way that a father can leverage his or her effectiveness is by working with people and through people. So it's absolutely imperative that we delegate in order to be successful. We are self-limiting by self-doing. If we try to do everything ourselves, then we are limited by the capacity that our energy and that our time um, extends to. That's it. So the only way that you can play a beautiful orchestra is by not playing one instrument, but leading and directing the delegation of a variety of instruments who all play the same song. But your question, why don't we do it? (laughs) That's a multifaceted answer. Some people are just too controlling. They will not let go. Other people are trying to make it perfect and they don't think anybody else can. So it's a self-esteem issue. There's a variety of issues, Pete, that cause people to not delegate. But the number one consistent theme that I've seen throughout all my years of teaching people to delegate is simply they don't know how. They'll try to duplicate themselves. They'll try to get people to do things exactly the way they would do it. They try to micromanage. They try to just give them a little few pieces of information and tell them to go, and they don't give them all the information. So our tool has been built to cover every eventuality of delegation and thereby make it successful. Okay. Exciting. Well, so then you've got a lot of reps of experience with a lot of clients and students who've picked up on this. Could you share with us maybe an inspiring case study of someone who was having some trouble delegating, but then they you know, saw some really cool things happen on the other side, just so we can get a taste and feel some inspiration for it? There's a man named Mike Solano who owns a $14 million hardware building supply enterprise. There's a rental center two building supplies, two hardware stores, et cetera. Now, this man worked six to seven days a week, every day spending eight to 10 hours a day. He was overwhelmed because he wanted everything to go well, and he was successful. But he was overwhelmed, tired, weary. He was not going to be able to keep up this pace. Now, I want to say something right now, Pete, about delegation, and that is Delegation is the tool. What you delegate is also very important because you don't just delegate tasks. You delegate roles. You delegate departments. You delegate businesses. So Mike learned this tool. He used it at the core of all of our other processes and teachings and tools that we use to run a business. And this was the core. And now Mike works two to three days a week if he wants to. His delegation process has empowered people. People have a sense of ownership. People have a sense of of accomplishment and achievement, and they enjoy going to work, doing their role, their job 
and and reaping their results. And he's allowed them to feel that kind of ownership. We teach people, we teach leaders, we teach managers that you need to lead accountable people and not hold people accountable. That's a core, core concept that we teach always. If you hold people accountable, you're the one holding the accountability. If you lead accountable people, then they're the ones holding the accountability. And that's a whole other subject. Mm -hmm. But Mike's people have learned to be accountable and he doesn't have to hold them accountable. And this tool is the core of how this process works. Excellent. Okay. Well, so then lay it on us. Well, what is this tool, this process? How do we go do it? Well, when your listeners go to the delegation flowchart link and download it, they're going to see what I'm talking about. But it truly is a flowchart, Pete. It starts at the top with what you do, and then it flows down the page, and it teaches you what to do at each stage of the delegation process. And at the very top, there is the point that you need to delegate accountability. Notice you're delegating accountability. You're not delegating just a task. You're delegating accountability, and you're including responsibility and authority. Now, that's an important point. Sometimes people try to delegate by giving people a task to do, but they don't give them the authority that's associated with the responsibility. And here's one of the first points. Sometimes the person doesn't have literal authority. For example, there's a safety officer in a big company. The safety officer doesn't hire and fire, but the safety officer is charged with going through the facility and making sure people are doing safe practices and following safe protocols. So what happens if Mr. or Mrs. Safety Person says to John or Jane Doe manager, hey, you need to stop doing that? If safety officer doesn't have authority, that person doesn't have any teeth in their words. So how do you give the safety officer authority? You give it to him or her as vicarious authority, no different than air traffic control. Now, I'm sure you've flown a lot, Pete, mm -hmm. but when I listen to the pilots, air traffic control says, United 73, descend and maintain 10,000. I have never once heard a pilot say, you're not my boss. <laughs> and obviously, they follow the instructions of air traffic control because of two reasons. One, there's benefit. They're not going to run into another plane. And number two, FAA and the United Airlines or Delta Airlines or whatever company you're looking at have given the air traffic controller vicarious authority to give orders to the pilots. So what that looks like is John or Jane Doe's CEO says to the company, people, Martha or John, this is my safety officer. When he or she is asking you to do something, it's as if I'm asking you to do it. So that's the first mindset that needs to be delivered in the context of delegation. We're delegating responsibility and authority. Right. So responsibility, authority, accountability. So it's sort of like the whole enchilada. It's like you own it, it's yours. And that's really handy in terms of there's not a lot of excuses that emerge from that. It's like, well, I just did this because that was what was on the process sheet I was supposed to follow as opposed to, well, no, you own this sort of domain. So 
yeah, you're going to follow the process, but you're also going to kind of exercise some judgment to do what clearly needs to be done to make it work out well. You're right, Pete. And that's a very insightful way of putting it. The person who is being delegated to feels ownership of that enchilada. Mm -hmm. But the most important point is that other people know that he or she has that enchilada. If they don't know, then that person is limited in their ability to carry out the task or the project. So that's the first mindset. And many things that we teach, Pete, have to do with mind shifts, mm -hmm. sort of like leading accountable people rather than holding people accountable. That mind shift alone changes a ton of behaviors and beliefs and attitudes. So that's the top of the flowchart. Delegate accountability, including responsibility and authority. And at that point, you create what we call a contract of expectations. There's never an assumption. The person being delegated to never walks away with a question. It's a two-way communication, and this is where our communication tools come in, but you must create a clear contract of expectations. The core of a contract of expectations, or COE as we call it, is a what, by whom, by when. What, by whom, by when. Who will do what, by when. Correct. Okay. Included in that is the purpose and context. Because if I just ask you, Pete, go do this, and you say, okay, I'll do it, and you have no purpose or context, then you cannot be creative in the obstacles that may come your way. If you know the reason, the why, the purpose, and the context where it fits in, then you can be a little bit more creative in your work as you encounter the unknown, which is always the case. Yeah, that is so valuable. And Really worth, I think, underscoring because I think a lot of times we don't know the why behind the request and we just sort of kind of do it. But I think I've been on both sides of things in terms of being the doer of the task and not really knowing, but it's like, well, I, I could go either way, but uh, I don't know. And it isn't in my thing. So are my instructions, I'm just going to make a note and kind of keep on rolling. And then as the leader, when I have been so wise <laughs> as to share the purpose and context, to be surprised and delighted with people that I'm managing, say, hey, you know, I bumped into this and so I did that. That is perfect, thank you. <laughs> it, it just feels so good. Like I didn't have to say anything. Yeah. And then it came back even better than I had imagined it could have from my just process instructions. So this is really cool. Purpose and context has many psychological benefits. It increases ownership. It shows respect. It feels like you belong, that you're included. But more importantly, if the percussionist in an orchestra doesn't know the song, all he can do is play the music. And if you don't play the music in the context of the song, you might play too loud. You might play too soft. Same with the violin. Same with the piccolo. Same with the French horn. We must understand the purpose and context of the notes that we're playing in order to make it effective in the long run. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this is the first thing that happens in the delegation process. It's preventative. So there's this clarity of what, by whom, by when. There's a purpose and context. If there's a long project, then you clarify when you want reports. And you always ask the person to do it. You don't tell. This is about leading accountable people. Pete, if I said, Pete, go do this or that, then you're just a puppet. You're just a, a person that's doing a job. 
If I say, will you do it? And you say yes, now we have a contract and you own it. So when you don't do it, if you don't, I don't say, didn't I tell you? I keep the accountability where it belongs. I say, Pete, didn't we agree? And where does that put the accountability? Right on you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the first step. So we build all of this. It takes a few minutes. Obviously, it could take hours, depending on if it's a large project, but there's clarity. There's absolute clarity. No assumptions ever. Clarity, clarity. Pristine, clear communication and an agreement. Now, when you do that, one of two things happens. If the person follows through, and if you look at the delegation flowchart, you'll see on the right side of the page, there's a box that says follow through. And when a person follows through, then the arrow goes down to what we call a continuous improvement celebration. Obviously, the type of celebration depends on the extent of the delegation. If I ask you to go get lunch for the team, that's different than solving world hunger. So the celebration is congruent with the task. And I don't know that we want to get into all the details of a uh, celebration at this point, but just to earmark the four parts, there's the party factor because everybody wants to have fun. There's the recognition and appreciation. People need to be recognized and appreciated. There's the learning what went well, what didn't go well, what didn't go well so you can fix it, what did go well so you can repeat it. Because if something went well and you don't know why it happened, you're not good, you're lucky. And then you transfer that knowledge to other people in the company or other friends, somebody else that could benefit. So that's the right side of the flow chart. Follow through, and then this, the last thing you do is to have some kind of a celebration, which gives closure and recognition and that motivation to want to be delegated to again. Okay. Now, the left side is when somebody may not follow through. This delegation process always works but what happens with somebody who doesn't follow through is that you follow this chart and you will fix it typically one time. There's a circle that goes on. So if there's no or limited follow through, there are four reasons. You know, Pete, I've never heard anybody talk about this. I've never heard anybody write about it. I've never heard anybody speak about these four concepts. But there's only four reasons why someone won't follow through. Only four. And I'm talking about anybody, your friend, your neighbor, your spouse, your kid, your employee, your employer. Human beings have four reasons why they won't follow through. And a wise leader, a wise delegator, will search for the reason in the order that I'll give them to you right now. The first is, and they all start with lack of. The first is lack of awareness. They weren't aware. Now, typically... <laughs> we're communicating when we're delegating. And humans aren't the greatest at communicating. Mm -hmm. So if it's lack of awareness, it's often some glitch that occurred in the communication process. Oh, I didn't know you meant that. You know, we could use the same word, success, and you can think of different criteria for success than I do. So the first is lack of awareness. And you never demand, you always ask questions. So what was your understanding of the task to see if there was awareness? If there was awareness, the second reason a person won't follow through or can't follow through is lack of training. 
They thought they knew how, but they didn't. So did you know how to do this? The third reason is lack of resources. They didn't have enough time. They didn't have enough equipment. They didn't have enough staff. They didn't have enough money. Something was lacking that wasn't prevalent or wasn't known at the beginning of the delegation process. And the only other reason a person won't follow through is lack of accountability. So lack of awareness, number one, lack of training, number two, lack of resources, number three, and lack of accountability. They're just not doing it. And so let's define accountability there in this context. So as they they don't feel like it, or, or what do you mean specifically about accountability here? They just didn't do it. Okay. It's just, a, it's, the outcome wasn't there. You didn't bring lunch. <laughs> well, so I, I guess, well, call me a stickler for, as a former strategy consultant about when you lay out, a, the, hey, there's four reasons. I get really excited about a mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive categorization set because I'm a dork that way. So lack of accountability, they just didn't do it. That almost feels like a everything else bucket. I guess in a way you could maybe subdivide that like, there are multiple reasons why they just didn't do it. They didn't feel like it. They weren't motivated. They don't care. Yeah. Can you unpack that lack of accountability a little more? Sure. And I love all those big words you used uh, to uh, identify this set. <laughs> that was awesome. Okay. Remember what we delegated at the beginning of time, at the beginning of this delegation process, we delegated accountability. Well, there's an obvious finishing of that sentence, the accountability to do blank. So you and I are climbing a mountain, and I delegate you the holding of the rope to belay me as I climb. Okay. If you do not adhere to that accountability, you just don't hold the rope, I don't really care why. Because at this point, we're not talking about the why. We're simply talking about the outcome, period. Mm -hmm. So if you don't hold the rope, there's danger. If your hands hurt, if you're sad, if you sneeze, if you don't feel like it, those are all beside the point. When you're out on the football field and the ball is thrown to you, it doesn't matter how you feel. Your job is to catch the ball. Mm-hmm. And if you don't go up to catch the ball, then you have not been accountable to what you've agreed to be accountable about. So it's really not a catch-all. It's specifically focused on the task that was delegated. In some ways, I suppose the four reasons are the why, but they're all about behavior and resources to do the behavior. They're not diving into the emotional or psychological or relational reasons. Oh, sure. I guess what I'm driving at is what I love about the first three is lack of awareness. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to have a clarifying conversation. We're going to have some more detail. Okay, good, good, good. We're all on the same page. Solved. You know, lack of training. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, here's an instructional, a tutorial, a class, a course, you know, whatever. Okay, now you know. Okay, good to go. Lack of resources. Oh, shucks, you're right. We got to free up some things from your plate or get some more people or budget under your purview. So that's solved. But how does one solve a lack of accountability? This, again, insightful, Pete. That's, that's fantastic because if you'll look at the chart, you'll notice that the first three items, awareness, training, and resources, are typically one-time fixes. Once you find that's the case, then you provide the fulfillment of what was missing, awareness, mm-hmm. training, or resources. So, And then you renegotiate the contract. It goes up, renegotiate the contract by saying, okay, let's look at the contract of expectations again and re-enter your delegating 
process, your, your process of doing what I've delegated you to, given your new resources or your new training or your new awareness. So that one's a one-time loop, one-time loop. Now, the lack of accountability, that one is fixed by using a separate tool. Now, first of all, I want to make sure that we understand that lack of accountability is binary. They either did it or they didn't. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't, they agreed to. So the first thing we do is to ask the question, didn't we agree? Right now, we're working with a $440 million, 2,500-person nonprofit dialysis company. That entire company is using this particular process to fix people who are not performing effectively, who are not being accountable. And HR, if you call HR, the first thing HR will say is, have you asked them if they agreed to the contract of expectations? So we keep the accountability where it belongs. And quite frankly, that's respectful. Mm -hmm. If I take your accountability away and say, all right, now I'm just going to demand this and I'm going to make you do what you, what I'm wanting you to do, then you're, you're a slave. You're not a fellow human being. So how you fix the lack of accountability is through this process. Number one, didn't we agree? And the person says yes. Then secondly, then what happened? We don't ask why. Then what happened? We give a chance for a person to give their reasons. Then third, then let's renegotiate the process here. Will you do A, B, and C by X, Y, and Z with J, L, and K outcomes. So you're basically revisiting the contract as well. But this time, the person is simply agreeing again. Now, let me get a little more practical. Let's say that you asked somebody to do something. They didn't do it. They weren't accountable. So you ask these questions. Then they don't do it the second time. Now, it's your wisdom that has to determine how many times you loop. Mm-hmm. If it's very, very important, it may be one or two times. If you're trying to grow something, somebody, maybe it's 12 times. But you will never, ever, you can never, ever, this is the beauty of this tool, you can never, ever, ever say, oh, well, that's Johnny. Because if we do that, everybody around us knows that we broke the contract. And we've perpetuated Johnny's behavior. We've allowed it to happen in other people. We destroy our own ability to delegate if we break the contract ourselves. So whatever your wisdom says, one time, two times, 12 times, there comes a time when you say, didn't we agree? Yes. What happened? Well, A, B, and C. Well, let's agree this time that if you don't do it, and then you have to default to your your discipline process, that you're going to be getting your first verbal warning. Let's say it's a verbal written, written and termination. So the person says, okay. So if the person doesn't follow through, they know before you do right, that they're not following through. So they're managing their own discipline process. So they come back. Didn't we agree? Yes. Well, then you remember what we agreed to. I'm giving you a verbal warning. Let's agree that if it doesn't happen again, you'll be getting your first written warning. So people either step up or step out. And here's the good news, Pete. Most people step up. We don't lose good people. Mm -hmm. They step up. They just needed boundaries. They needed clarification. You know, kids need boundaries. Our employees need boundaries. Friends need boundaries. And when we put a boundary in this tool, a person steps up or steps out. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's what you do when there's no or limited follow through. You find the reason, fix it one time with the first three, use wisdom to fix it for the fourth reason, the lack of accountability. And then one of two things happens. The person follows through, which happens most of the time, or the person doesn't and they're terminated from the team. They're demoted. They're not allowed to be on the team anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the delegating of the task always works. The person who is in the process of being delegated to sometimes might change if they're not willing to step up. Mm-hmm. This is really stretching my brain in some great ways. So thank you. I guess I'm wondering if, um, let's say they do the work, but the results are not as grand as you'd hope. I don't know. It may be in terms of like the quality, like, oh, I asked you to write up this document and uh, the writing is lackluster. Or maybe it's a, a higher end result, like, hey, you know, you were supposed to uh, run this business division and generate uh, $10 million in gross profit this quarter, and you got eight. So I guess in a way, they do the work, but they don't get the results. How do we play that game? Well, two things. One, we must look at the delegator first. Okay. Because you've got to be sure and have a clear contract of expectations at the beginning. So lackluster is of a writing material is a bit uh, fuzzy. So it's up to the delegator to be clear and precise in communicating what needs to be done. The $10 million is rather clear and precise. So the first thing, we've got to look at the delegator to make sure that the delegator is clear in his or her communication about the contract of expectations. And then secondly, part of the contract of expectations at the beginning, I mentioned just briefly in passing, if it's a longer timeline, you want to get reports. And so the $8 million at the end of this stretch of time should not be a surprise. The first benchmark, the first waymark If the person was not on track, there's a communication that goes on with the delegator and the delegatee as to what's going on. And one of two things happen. Either the goal begins to be adjusted or it is strengthened by some of the resources to allow that goal to be reached. So the delegator in both cases, the lackluster in the writing or the diminished return on the 8 million versus 10 million is involved in the process of guiding and helping along the way. But the key thing is the delegator is not doing it. The delegator is leveraging him or herself by delegating to the person who's trying to play the violin. Oh, you're not playing that note quite right. Here's some techniques that you could use. Go practice those and come back. Mm -hmm. I will tell you this, that through the delegation process, we do find that some people just are not bad people, nor are they unwilling people but they don't have the capacity. It's up to the leader and manager to understand this over time. I didn't mention this earlier, but I have a master's degree in psychology and I was a marriage and family therapist in the early 80s for a couple of years. And I've always needed to know the intent of a person, not the behavior of the person. In fact, my dad taught me that on the farm. He said, Billy, always know why people are doing things. Don't just look at what they're doing. So I look at the why when a person isn't following through. And it could be those four reasons, like I said, but we've entered into another little dimension here. If a person doesn't have willingness 
or capacity, they won't do it. In fact, they can't do it. Even relationships. Relationships can only be successful if both parties have willingness and capacity. And I'm not talking just about a married couple. I'm talking about a business and customers. Mm -hmm. Both sides of the equation, both people have to have willingness and capacity. So in our process of delegating, everything might be going well, but then we realize this person, no matter how great they are, no matter how talented they are, no matter how willing they are, they just don't have the capacity. And that's where we have to uh, adjust who we're delegating to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Bill, thank you. Tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. The core concept of everything we teach is to be other-centered. I want to just highlight that. That's embedded in this. Is clearly seen in leading accountable people. It's clearly seen in asking the person to agree. It's clearly seen even in the disciplining process, if a person has lack of accountability. But I believe that the most successful businesses, the most successful leader, the most successful delegator will do so in the context of where the other person is coming from, how to communicate to them. We'll communicate to a 12-year-old differently than we will a 48-year-old. We'll communicate to a person with a different skill set differently than a person who has a limited skill set. So the delegation process is a tool. It's like a shovel, but you dig differently in sand than you do in clay. So we exercise our interaction with the other person using the same tool. We exercise it a little differently based on that other person's needs and wants. That's how we make them successful, is that we're always other-centered in our application of this tool. All right, thank you. Now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I suppose my favorite quote in all of my life has come from my dad, and I've illuminated it earlier. He always said two things. Billy, always understand why the person is doing what they're doing. And that understanding breeds empathy, acceptance, and the ability to lead them. And then he also said, Billy, if you can't do anything about it, it doesn't exist. And what that meant, I grew to learn over time, is that I deal with what I can do, and I don't take your stuff, and that gives respect. And that particular quote has caused boundaries that are freeing. It enables me to not have to run to the rescue. It's like, if it's not mine, it's your, I'll care, but I won't carry. I'll love, but I won't take it back from you. So that's a roundabout way of saying my dad gave me those two, two quotes that I live by, and they are very, very meaningful. They're very deep in my soul. He said, always know the why, and then you'll understand the person. And if you can't do anything about it, it doesn't exist. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I love the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Daniel Kahneman wrote it, and it tells you what goes on in your brain very fast uh, when you encounter something and then what happens after you think about it. And that research has, j- has literally changed my life on how I teach, on how I think, on how I do what I do. Mm-hmm. Okay. And tell me, is there a 
particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and people quote back to you often? Well, <laughs> there isn't necessarily one, but I will tell you this little story. There was a man in one of the large companies, 8,500 person company that had this Christmas party. And this man went as Bill Truby, <laughs> though nobody knew he was Bill Truby. And he was dressed in a tie, a shirt, and an overcoat. And uh, people said, so who are you? This was a dress-up affair, masquerade-type thing. He said, I'm Bill Truby. And they would say, what do you mean? And he'd open up his coat, and in there were three-by-five cards that he called Trubyisms. So apparently, I say things all the time that people remember, and I, uh, I don't think there's one, Pete. I think that there's things. I make them up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I make them up. I go to a company, and I'll officify them. And then people start using that word. Okay, we're going to get efficified. And uh, <laughs> I'm here to give to, to bring you to a state of efficiency. So I don't think I'm stuck on one. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Trubyachievements.com. And uh, this delegation flowchart can be found there. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill, this has been a treat. Thank you for sharing the good word and good luck in all you delegate. Thank you, Pete. I really appreciate you hanging in there for four years so we could meet each other. I do appreciate what you're doing, and I'm glad that I could help support it. I dug what Bill had to say about we are self-limiting by self-doing. I have really been able to expand my impact by finding the courage to let go a little bit, to entrust some folks and follow up and train and coach. And so I encourage you to do the same, even if you don't have any direct reports. There may very well be some opportunities for a little bit of hourly assistance here and there, maybe with your taxes, maybe with your children, maybe with the home tidying. There are some areas I found whenever I take a good look that I've been kind of holding on to just my own personality. And when I let go a little bit and let other people help out, great things happen and it's a good return on the time, the money the effort to pull that off. So anyway, good stuff from Bill. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep573. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Vikram Mancharamani. He's got some pro tips on how to think for yourself all the more wisely and clearly and do some optimal critical thinking and decision-making. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.